0: When done well, you get to see Carnage reign, which is kind of an uncomfortable but really fun experience. <laughs> Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. And I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Welcome back, everyone. It is a beautiful spring day where I'm at. Hopefully it is beautiful where you are as well. So I've just spent all day outside pondering the intricacies of the play that we're going to be talking about. Um... Any 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 words before we just like say what we're doing? This is this is a bit of a weird one for us. It
1: is God of Carnage by Yasmina yeah. Resa. It is a originally written in French but translated to English by Christopher Hampton. I don't know of other translations out there other than potentially like what the movie worked from and things like that, but this is the main copy of the script, the main translation that exists.
0: Yeah. This is uh, a play that we have, I think we saw the same version of this play, did we not? At uh, ACTF, you've never seen this play. I have
1: never seen this play. No, I I read it many times, but I've never seen
0: it. I uh, yeah, I got to see this play as part of the American College Theater Festival. I believe it was in Ames, Iowa at the time. And uh, yeah, so this play has kind of stuck in my mind from that event. And now going into the reading of it again, it's been fun to realize how much of it is still kind of stored away. It's a really evocative play. I'm excited to get to, you know, jump into it.
1: Yeah, really gripping. You you follow along these four characters the whole way through. I'm sure we're going to talk about that. There is an LATW, uh, L.A. Theater Works, audio version of this play which is pretty good you can buy for five dollars on their website we're not you know we're not sponsored or endorsed by them or anything but I do love the fact that there are audio plays being sold in the world of you know real high quality scripts so uh, please download that listen to it it's a really great recording before we hop into talking about the script we do want to take a minute to ask everybody to go on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast that is where you will find our patreon page where you can become a patron of no script podcast all it takes from you is choosing what amount per month you are willing to give to support the continuing work of this podcast what Jackson and I do we love to do but it does incur some costs including regular hosting fees and of course purchasing the scripts that we can't find at our local library so we need some help to support the work that we're doing there are several different tiers several different monthly giving options the lowest of them is just one dollar a month if all all you can afford is $1 a month. That is great. That will help us immensely. Please go to patreon.com slash podcast and give us $1 a month to continue just the one. work that we're doing here.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like Jacob said, just uh, head over there. We got some cool stuff going on over there. So hopefully we'll see you on the Patreon. The Patreon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, let's jump in. Uh, We're going to contextualize this one a bit. This one has a bit of a fun story uh, in comparison to some of the scripts that we do. This play was written in France in the French language by Yasmina Reza. Um, it had a couple of uh, productions over across the pond from us, as it were. Um, there were uh, there was a production in Germany and then a production in France. Uh, the first production in, in Germany was in 2006. And then the production in France was in 2008, January 25th. That production was actually directed by the author herself, Yasmina Reza. But then uh, just two months later, the play had its uh, West End premiere in England. So clearly the two were kind of in production at the same time. So that's kind of a cool history there. Then in 2009, there was the, uh, or I'm sorry, in 2008, the, uh, the production that was in London was the translated version. So this play has kind of two authors in a way. There's Yasmina Reza who wrote it in French and then it was translated by Christopher Hampton. So, Obviously, the one in France would have been in French, but then the English version was running side by side. The next year in 2009, it had its Broadway production, which had a pretty star-studded cast. There was Jeff Daniels and Hope Davis, James Gandolfini and Marcia Gray. Marcia, yeah, Gay Harden. Um, that production had a bunch of Tony Awards that it was nominated for, and a couple of them won. Marcia Gay Harden won, as did uh, Yasmina Reza for Best Play. So, uh, 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 well lauded, also best director of the play was Matthew Warkis, who directed both the English and the Broadway production, or the West End and the Broadway production. The other uh, instance that you may have seen this uh, play was in a film just called Carnage, which was a 2011 film, and that starred Jodie Foster, John C. Riley, and Christoph Waltz, as well as Kate Winslet in the roles of this play. So it's it's had quite the life, and it continues to be done. Uh, Just recently, the summer season of 2018, it was done at the Theatre Royal in Bath in England. So this is a, a a storied play in many circles and uh just kind of interesting that it it's had this journey through two languages and uh, different types of productions
1: yeah like you say really storied really star-studded history for only being about 11 years old this play is it's just got those it's it's got a sense of being so gripping and I don't know I think that Playing the characters to actors even of the caliber of people like Jeff Daniels or uh, Christoph Waltz, it's, there's a sense of really stepping into, I don't know, something in – a journey that's enthralling to be on to walk into one of these four yeah. characters. Mm-hmm. So the play follows two couples, the Rallies and the Novaks. So – just bear in mind as we go through, we're going to be talking about the English version of the play. These yes. characters have different names and uh, even slightly different, you know, uh, cultural contexts depending on, on where the play is done. Here, they are the Rallies and the Novaks, and uh, the Rallies are Aunt Alan and Annette. Excuse me, Alan and Annette. And then the Novaks are Michael and Veronica, often referred to as Ronnie, throughout the play. So two couples. The premise is really very simple. The the Novaks, Michael and Veronica, invite Alan and Annette, the Raleigh's, over to their house because their children have been in a fight. And Alan and Annette's son, Benjamin, has struck Michael and Veronica's son Henry with a stick, hard enough to break several teeth, cause some nerve damage. I mean, you know, he 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 whopped him, and so they have invited the 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 victim party have invited uh, the the parents of the attacker over to discuss what went on. Exactly what the goal of this meeting ever was is. S- somewhat interesting yeah um, to, and, and I'm sure that that's one thing that we'll all we'll, we'll look at is what these characters really thought they were ever going to get out of this conversation but the, nonetheless the conversation happens and, and what happens over the, about the 90 60 to 90 minutes of the play it's a long one act it has been performed in two acts in various places you take an intermission somewhere during but the script is not written that way it's just written as a long one act so somewhere during that 60 to 90 minutes, as you can imagine, the endless bickering begins and (laughs) the the couples fall apart there's changing um changing alliances uh and 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 they discuss just a whole variety of issues always sort of landing back on this conflict between their children
0: yeah yeah and and just kind of seeing I think seeing the characters devolve is part of the reason why this play keeps drawing in such talent. Is it's fun to start in one place and then just slowly have inhibitions removed through various means, both social and also chemical, um, throughout <laughs> the play. <laughs> I think it's a really fun devolution throughout. Um, and, and yeah, the the beat before is a compelling beat before, right? Like their kids. Their kids have been hit, <laughs> or a kid has been hit by another kid. There's been a violent instance, and uh, and I, I let's 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 talk right away at that one question that you had. What do you think the purpose of that first meeting is? Because there there's some language that they're trying to hash out, and uh, they're trying to recount some of what happened, but it's a little unclear.
1: Right, and the purpose. Depends character to character too, right? Because Mm -hmm. we learn later in the play, at least as far as they claim. This is, again, before I say this, I should say that this is a play without a reliable narrator. Oh, yeah. And not not in that there's a specific unreliable narrator, but in that all we get is the interpretations of these four people and what they have decided to reveal the to the group, whether true or false, at any specific point. So the example later in the play, both Alan and Michael, the two men of this foursome that are here, uh claim at different points that they never wanted to be at this stupid meeting in the first place, that they thought it was a bad idea from the beginning, that they can't believe that they're here talking about their kids fighting. Isn't that so stupid? Now, who knows (laughs) whether they really express that to their wives in the way that they claim they did and as clearly as they claim that they did. But they, Michael and Alan, at least later in the play, claim to have just been drug along to a meeting right. that they never intended to be at. But then, you know, Michael's such a good host. He takes so such good care. He really sets out to make the Raleigh's feel at home. He's often on their side against his wife in a in a very odd way. It seems to me that the person with the most clear aim, the most clear ambition through the whole thing is, is who? I bet we'll say the same person, Jackson. Who do you think walks into this with the most clear idea of what she wants?
0: I think it's Veronica. Veronica, right. Yeah. And, and, and
1: I don't think anybody who reads or interacts with the script disagrees with us there. She's the one that really seems to have spearheaded and
0: organized the whole discussion. Yep. And what does she want? Well, she wants a peaceable outcome. She wants to believe that civilization can exist even in this complicated scenario and that they can civilly uh, resolve this issue without a bunch of uh, blaming and uh, and back and forth. However, she also wants justice <laughs> he, he to be done. You saw my face there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was yeah, giving she, you the raised <laughs> eyebrow about that <laughs> answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> however, she also wants uh, some justice to be done. Um, she She is firmly in the belief that her son had nothing at all... Nothing of the wrong on his side at all. And so uh, eventually it begins to come out that in addition to let's just all be peaceable about this, let's all have good language around it, etc. It comes out that she would also like Benjamin to apologize, know what he did and apologize to Henry for it
1: right and that's all maybe the spoken level of what Veronica is after she she expresses very fluently very elegantly through the whole thing that she's a person that believes in these sort of we can sit down and talk this out we're reasonable people we're in control of our impulses unlike our children you know we have the ability to solve this kind of a problem like real thinking human beings at the same time she also expresses that she wants Benjamin to be punished in some way she mm-hmm. wants Benjamin to apologize she wants there to be a spoken sense of her son as 100% victim and Benjamin as 100% perpetuator which is a tough thing to demand when right. you also want a peaceable outcome Yeah, <laughs> but then there's another level a less spoken level of judgment parental judgment there's a mm. sense that Veronica also wants Alan and Annette to recognize their own shortcoming as as parents and <laughs> as proved by this in uh, this incident,
0: yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of um <laughs> she kind of questions them as to. Does he know that he did something wrong? Have you spoken to him about this? Will you you should be there when he apologizes, right? You're planning to be there, right? Like, parent, your child. <laughs> your child is a menace. Um <laughs> she doesn't say that to their face. but when they're off stage, shes she will says to Michael, their child is a public menace. They need to care more about this. So I absolutely agree that there's some definitely some judgment against their parenting style. How does how does that balance out though? Because the I, I think of them as the A's. It's the way I can keep them straight in my head. Alan and Annette um, uh, both uh, kind of find out some stuff about Michael and Veronica throughout the play too. That begins to damn them uh, as parents as well. Well, both
1: the married couples suffer some fractures in their marriage or <laughs> perhaps the the existing fractures are highlighted by the yeah. encapsulated tense situation. And so what Alan and Annette, while they have their own trouble, some of their journey is witnessing Veronica and Michael who right at the beginning have tried to sort of frame themselves as the reasonable perfect, conscientious parents, right? We're the our son was her, but we're inviting you over. We just want an apology. It's okay. Hey, children are children, but we want to make sure it goes on all right from now on. We want to work this out. There's this sense of moral superiority right away. And really in the first few pages, that's that's hit even maybe a little heavy-handedly. The sense that the the power structure is Alan and Annette are Guilty by association of their son, and they've been brought by the good graces. Right. And from on high of mighty Veronica <laughs> and Michael into their home, welcomed and saved from their sins. Yep. But and what Al- yeah. But Fed hospitality. Fed taken <laughs> such good care of. But what Alan and Annette witness is that Michael and Veronica are not what they claimed to be. they first of right. all, they're not really even on the same page about the events that occurred.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> cuz well because that is even kind of subjective right like some of some of the time they they're kind of giving a glowing testament to Henry who they they are saying Henry didn't want to give up anyone at all he didn't want to be a snitch he, he 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 wouldn't tell us who had hit him and then we drug it out of him i think michael is saying that if i remember correctly but both of them are kind of going back and forth on it so that's the one side of it is that they <laughs> that they that their son is like this idealized boy who even when struck in the face with something will not give up the one who did it to them.
1: Mhm. But they themselves have got some parenting qualms. <laughs> the most obvious, the one that runs throughout the play, perhaps one of the images that you would remember if you saw the play and took it with you, is Michael's uh prior to the play transgression. So there's several events prior to the play end up playing into the action one of them is that michael has brutally murdered uh, <laughs> or abandoned perhaps abandoned, is more yeah. accurate the family hamster Uh, It it comes out that Michael has hated this hamster that they had for a long time. And it makes a bunch of noise at night. So using the excuse that Henry was in such pain because of his mouth, because he got hit with the stick, that he couldn't sleep. And so the hamster was bothering him. Using that as an excuse, Michael claims that he took the hamster out into the street, dumped it out of its cage, and expected it to scurry off to freedom, so he claims. It didn't scurry off to freedom, but, again, so he claims... He has a phobia of rodents, so he can't pick he can't up the pick hamster up to put it back in the cage. So he just leaves it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then the next morning, he, like, lies to his kid about it. And eventually it comes out that, yeah, I left it in the street. Um, and it wasn't there the next morning. So underneath it all is this this uh, kind of currently running argument that they have about what he did the night before with the hamster. Cause it's still very fresh. The daughter calls at one point and is very broken up about the hamster. Yeah, actually
1: it's the final beat of the play. It comes <laughs> yeah. back at the at the final moments is the daughter calling just distraught. And and this is a, a different child than the one that was involved in the altercations. The um I think they're the Novaks have two children, Henry the the boy that was attacked, and then his younger sister. The Rallies, I think, only have the one child. Benjamin, who was the attacker. So Michael's got this odd... Strangely brutal sense about him, which comes up again and again, that reveals some of the, you know, sort of in a Shrek reference, the onion layers to what the the Novaks have going on. But there's also some internal disagreements between them. It comes out that the reason why Benjamin struck Henry, again, prior to the play, we don't see the scene, is that Henry would not allow Benjamin to join his gang. Right. And Veronica, the peacemaker, the civilized, uh, we're, we can handle all this on, on the table says, I didn't know my son
0: was in a gang.
1: And how does Michael react to that
0: news? Wow, that's great news. He has a <laughs> gang. Man, <laughs> I had a gang growing up. To be the leader of my gang, I had to knock out this one guy who <laughs> he like goes into this story about how he had to fight someone completely counter to <laughs> The 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 way that the Novaks led by Veronica are trying to lead this discussion, right? Like they're really wanting to play up that this is not the way people behave anymore. And they're and, trying to
1: play up the violence of it, right? I mean, right. several times throughout the play they emphasize the physical bloody result, the 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 actual injuries sustained mm-hmm. in a way to highlight that there was violence done. But then Michael says Violence is great. When I was a kid, I was beating people up all the time.
0: Beat them to a pulp. <laughs> yeah, no, he absolutely has this understreak that begins to materialize more and more. And part of it is how much of an annoyance the other couple is to them, um, both to both of their goals. Um, I think <laughs> I think Michael would just like this to be done. Veronica wants this to be done well. Both ways. Both of those goals are opposed by Alan and Annette. Um, uh, Alan spends mm, a good chunk of the play. I don't know if you could give it a fraction or not, but a good chunk of the play talking on his cell phone Um, Yeah, in, in,
1: in what ends up being really the only major subplot. There's mm-hmm. a little bit of a plot that goes on with Michael's sickly mother. Yeah. But other than that, the 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 whole sixty to ninety minutes is these two couples having a discussion, except for the major subplot, which is Alan and his cell phone.
0: Yeah, and there's this there's this whole thing going. He's a lawyer for a bunch of different people, but he's the lawyer for a pharmaceutical company that is just getting back word that its drug, uh, uh, I forget the name of the drug, maybe Endrol. Andrel, Andrel or something like that? Yeah. Something. It's starting to have some people give feedback about some negative side effects like dizziness and uh, Well,
1: <laughs> Well, starting to. <laughs> starting to. <laughs> it's revealed yeah. that the company has known about the side effects for two years. Right. And has not told anyone. So now the company's about to be in some hot legal water. And it's yeah. Alan's job to basically bury the story. Yeah. To make it as if nothing ever happened, there are no side effects, in a very slimy, makes you feel <laughs> gross watching him do it, but also makes you go, this really happens.
0: Yeah. <laughs> this, this
1: discussion that they're having, holy moly,
0: this really <laughs> happens. It's, uh-huh. almost, it's almost
1: scary. <laughs>
0: It is, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And and he's talking to two different people throughout the whole thing. So he's getting multiple phone calls that sometimes are just like a one or two line uh, beat aside, but other times are like a stand up, walk away, have a long discussion with someone on the phone business. He's talking to his office and he's talking to the owner of the pharmaceutical company and kind of playing ping pong between the two of them as he's, as he's drafting a statement, telling the other person that the statement's coming, uh, writing the statement basically over the phone in the middle of the them all fighting about their children (laughs) and what's the best way to make uh, some, some result come out of this situation.
1: Right. And so that tension between Annette and Alan, that Alan is always on his phone is always working, ends up lending itself to reveal one of the larger cracks in their marriage, which is this sense that Annette feels abandoned to take care of everything by herself. That Alan is so on his phone, so much always working, that she takes care of everything to do with the home and and children rearing and all this kind of stuff. And she doesn't even really want to do it. Right.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah, she she describes it as like the the menial tasks or the 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 less desirable tasks of running the home or something like that. There's this throughout the the play there is repeated mention of like a John Wayne style of uh kind of what's the best way like warrior male stereotype.
1: Yeah, well they <laughs> say like a John Wayne sense of virility. This virility w- thank like you. Lone yeah. Wolf, Lone Ranger,
0: Spartacus. Yeah,
1: it's it's I mean, <laughs> the The sense of this um violent talk with my hands, uh, do everything based on gut instinct, no jabbering about it. take care of business by myself. Uh, that that sense of that as the ideal masculine figure really r- rings throughout the whole play, embraced nearly wholeheartedly by the end by both Alan and Michael and Annette.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's the really kind of fascinating part is that multiple people kind of Feed into it and and talk about how, how that sense of uh John Wayne-ish virility is uh also uh, uh, applies to the cell phone. That's a beat, is uh that John Wayne had a Colt 45, something that could make a vacuum. Um and like that 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 is what I would appreciate in a man, not tied to a cell yes, phone all the time. It's a very
1: odd monologue. It comes very <laughs> late in the play, and it's a monologue about how she's never been attracted to men who have gadgets or right. shoulder bags bags or cell phones (laughs) yeah shoulder bags yeah (laughs) she wants all she's only attracted to men who have the sense that they could be a loner and Mm -hmm. something about cell phones and shoulder bags and gadgets make him not seem that way but a gun is like an obvious (laughs) this guy could be a loner and apparently that's what attracts her to a man i don't know it's, it's a very odd moment
0: Mm-hmm. Well, all of this comes after a pretty significant beat in the play. Um I, I don't know that there has ever been such a clear note of alcohol equals um loss of inhibitions <laughs> in a play. <laughs> You're of course
1: talking about the cell phone.
0: No, no, I, no. I'm talking I'm talking about when they all start drinking rum and then slowly they become the biggest version of themselves.
1: Right, okay. So so about halfway through the play, they they all begin to drink. And my sense that you were talking about the cell phone is yeah. that th- really the culmination of the fact that they're, at least many of them, are getting progressively more drunk is that this, this problem of Alan running off to answer phone calls about the most morally abhorrent thing ever and talking about it really loudly, the tension of that builds throughout the play. He's told numerous times by many of the other characters that he needs to stop being on his cell phone and pay attention to what's going on. Finally, after some alcohol is involved, Annette swipes the phone from him and (laughs) dumps it in a vase.
0: Yep. (laughs) I mean, burying it in water. Mm Mm-hmm. Which which also reveals kind of an interesting beat from everyone where... Uh, (laughs) both Veronica and Annette jump onto each other's side as this is a great thing that you just did and then both Michael and Alan are like really focused on getting this phone back in shape (laughs) like Michael jumps right in and just the beat before everyone was mad at each other right like couples were mad at each other within the couple units they were all mad at each other but now suddenly when the phone is in jeopardy um, (laughs) both Michael and Alan get out a blow dryer take the pieces apart begin trying to dry it off both the women are kind of making fun of how uh, uh how into the saving of the phone the guys are and and that 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 kind of interesting switch of uh who is allied happens throughout the whole play like it's it's fascinating how often those lines shift throughout
1: yeah i wonder jackson did you take acting class with karen
0: uh no i took no, the second on one they were
1: sabbatical weren't they
0: yeah i took the yeah, second yeah. one with karen
1: so in Friend of the show, In Karen undergrad, Barker. Karen Baum Barker, who was our special guest last season. She taught me acting class, and she's an acting. She teaches acting, and her acting class is largely based on improv. Now, Karen, as I, I suspect that you're listening, and so if I get the <laughs> the details of of how I use the words wrong, I apologize. It's been a few years, but there is an improv game that we played many times, where. You improv scenes and there's three of you playing and one of you has a goal and the goal is to closely align yourself with one character or the other through the improv scene in a believable way over time that takes a few minutes. So you might – you'll get some sort of situation like you know two of you are a couple and the third one is the cashier and then one of the couple, their goal is to align themselves more closely with the cashier than – ...than with the person that they're married to. And and the idea, I think, Karen, is to (laughs) to teach actors and to get actors into the habit of establishing relationships with characters... ...and using relationship and where you're at in those relationships as a basis for some of the core of your acting. And this play... Man, it feels like it was developed out of that game.
0: Oh, absolutely. It feels like
1: you let four players play the aligning game, and at (laughs) various points they're out improving a script. Whoever was directing it just called it, okay, now you two are aligned, and you
0: two aren't. (laughs) It's like a tag out almost of like whenever people, you know, someone kind of watches a little while as something derails, and then the one person who is ganged up on will turn to the other and be like, will you help me with this? And then the other the The fourth person will jump in and try to either help or hinder that that uh, that person and their goals.
1: Right, because the the play starts with the two couples we sort of talked about in a in an unequal power dynamic. And the sense of alignment is between the two couples, that Veronica and Michael are largely on one side about their son, and Alan and Annette are largely on another side about their son. And very quickly, cracks start to form in those alignments. And you see tensions uh, develop in the marriages themselves, but not too much cross-marriage tension, not too much inner tension between what they're actually discussing. That comes later but those cracks start to form and you start to see the the alignments kind of fall apart the the relationship mm-hmm. bonds st- start to show their weaknesses and then you move into the sort of the middle section of the play and really what ends up happening is that the men end up more closely aligned and the women <laughs> end up more closely aligned and the largely the combat or the the bickering is between those two groups the women bickering against the men the men bickering against the women and then mm-hmm. by the end of the play We get to the point where eh, they switch (laughs) almost somewhat back to the couples, but ultimately, really, they're isolated. Yeah. Uh, really, by the end of the play, no one has any relationship, any substantive mm-hmm. relationship with any other character on the play. There's a sense of this isolation because the marriage fights have so broken apart. Again, partially propelled by the alcohol, as you described. But yep. also, their cross-gender alignments have fallen apart. Uh, let's talk about why those fall apart. I'll take the guys if you want to take the gals. Sure. Um, the guys... Michael and Alan, again, kind of towards the middle of the play, they start to become closely aligned as... The conversation turns towards kind of gender politics, kind of uh, responsibilities in the family. Um, the discussion turns away from the two boys for a while and sort of towards the present moment, almost in a philosophical sense. And the guys sort of end up on one side of that debate. But we've described how Alan's law firm is um, uh, they're – they're trying to cover up the side effects of this – pill. uh, I think it's Andril, but I might be wrong about that. And Michael has gotten a few calls from his mother, who's ill, and a little ways through the play, he learns that she has been prescribed this medication. And the fact that she's now taking it causes a little bit of a rift between him and Alan as they get to the point where, uh, you know, Michael really wants Alan to get on the phone and talk to the mother and describe how, uh, you know, she shouldn't be taking this
0: medication. It's bad for her, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and, and eventually, yeah, he gets on the phone and Annette tells him to hang up. And within, within that next very short beat comes the kind of... Uh, dissolving of the ally of the two wives, they... Annette kind of drops at the at towards the end of that, that scene is uh she says for the first time out loud, it's been alluded to before, that she says there's probably wrongs on both sides, and that Henry is not as innocent, is not really innocent in this. And Veronica will not have that at all. She like grabs her purse, throws it at the door, begins breaking stuff. Uh, Annette says <laughs> that she's like attacking her and and asks Alan to come and help and defend her. Why aren't you defending? me. And then uh, they're, they're back and forth a little bit, which culminates in Annette running over to the flowers that have been the two. Tu- there's tulips in here that they've been alluded to repeatedly. And she just throws it across the room and uh, flowers go everywhere. Water goes everywhere. The the whatever state the living room started in, it has since kind of just completely been thrown apart through uh, Annette vomits at one point, just all over their stuff, and uh, now she throws flowers everywhere, and so by the end of that beat, they are very unaligned as well.
1: Right, yeah, they, their their combat, especially towards the end, (laughs) um, really makes up what the action that is going to eventually end the play. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fight that they get in, basically because Annette finally comes out with the accusation that she's been dancing around the whole play, which is, I don't really think my son was 100% in the wrong in this situation. She finally comes out and says, there are wrongs on both sides. And that statement just causes Veronica to fly into a rage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And like you say, break the stuff in her purse. And because she does that, it causes Annette to break the vase.
0: Yeah, which which then like causes a whole other series of things. Alan gets like the most talkative that he's been throughout the play. He like attacks Veronica and her idealized world's going to be okay if we just stick with, you know, looking out for everyone sort of mentality at the end. And he gets like very verbose at the end uh, against, against Veronica, which is not necessarily a switch for him. Uh, throughout the play, you get the sense that he's kind of a jerk. Um, but but by the end he actually says out loud all the things that he's thinking and, and it, it, it really it, – it is punctuated then by the phone call from the daughter. So you don't even get like too much of a resolution after it really, yeah? This play in general you don't get a resolution.
1: Right. There's, there's not much resolution to the play at all. And as you're describing, Alan shows himself to be a real jerk yeah. through the whole play. He he's constantly talking on his phone, ignoring everything. He's in the midst of this morally outrageous cover-up yep. that we, as the audience, in that fly on the wall realism sense—well, not realism—we'll talk not, about that—in that, that fly on the wall sort of voyeuristic look into these it falls apart of their, of, you know, of their lives. We watch him do that, and so we, I think, we know from beginning to end that Alan is. Uh, jerk, you know, and not only all of that, but he also says things routinely like, Annette, I'm doing you a favor by being here. (laughs) This is your job, not mine. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that he doesn't like Benjamin. Uh, Do any of them like their kids? I don't know. Does anyone besides (laughs) Veronica legitimately (laughs) like the fact that they have a kid? The answer
0: is, might be no. My, I know. Yeah, yeah. So, so we know. We know. Alan doesn't like Benjamin. He repeatedly calls him like a barbarian. A basically. savage is the word he uses <laughs> over again. My yeah. son's
1: a savage. He's a and and this is one of the odd things where the the cracks in the marriages start to show. Maybe the first half of the play, something like that, occupies this this sort of a discussion. Let's see if we can get all four and kind of their yeah. their points into it. So. Veronica, again, we'll start with the most clear, believes that um, Benjamin was in the wrong, he did something to hurt Henry, Henry's 100% innocent, Benjamin's 100% guilty, but we're humans, we can work it out, Benjamin needs to come apologize, he needs to admit that what he did was wrong, he needs to be punished, and then we can all move on from there. Mm-hmm. Annette believes, uh, thank you so much for accepting, uh, you know, uh, our ability to make apology. We can certainly have Ben come over and talk. I'm not sure he's 100% in the wrong, and I'd like to figure out exactly what was going on. I'm not really sure I'm going to punish him for this, but I sort of agree. Where does Michael land in, in, on that kind of now, Mike, outline debate?
0: Michael lands in kind of a zone of yes, your kid hit my kid. That was wrong. He, my kid's in pain. Um, but the fact that the hitting happened is not really my issue so much. Um, yeah, he, <laughs> he's like, he's, he's fine that there is fighting happening, but some wrong was done. He's here because Veronica kind of made the situation happen. And so he'll fight for it, I guess.
1: Yeah, he's sort of apathetic <laughs> about the fact that it actually happened Yeah. for the most part. He maybe has a little bit of stake in the fact that, uh, Benjamin hit his kid with a stick rather than just like having an open brawl yeah, like he used to yep, have when he an agreed a kid.
0: upon brawl like that right. that that is brought up a couple times is that his his time when he beat the kid to a pulp there was like a we will fight beat and that made it honorable instead of like you know someone had a weapon <laughs> was armed with a weapon furnished with a weapon there was <laughs> there's a whole back and forth about what kind of language to use around that so that's where he's coming from. And then there's Alan, who's like, <laughs> he's there. Be, he's very there because Annette made him come. He he knows, or he he seems to think that his kid was in the wrong because he's an awful kid. And he doesn't really care that it happened. He wants a resolution. Um, he, He'd be open to the idea of kind of poking the bear of that there was wrong on both sides, I think. He's just, he's, he's a devil's advocate. He doesn't like well, anyone. And,
1: and he <laughs> believes that his kid, for some reason, he believes his kid is outright a savage. He right. doesn't really care about the apology or anything like that because he doesn't believe it will do any good. Right. You know, Veronica says, can I talk to Benjamin then? Again, that sort of judgmental, maybe I would do a better job parenting <laughs> right. your kid than you would. Can I mm-hmm. talk to Benjamin? And Alan's response is like, good luck. <laughs> sure. You could do whatever you want. It's not going <laughs> to matter. The kid's a monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Michael also comes at it from this sense of like they were just kids. The fighting's not a big deal because kids are kids, and he's a little bit aligned with Annette on that issue too. Annette routinely says things, you know, like you know he's just eleven. He doesn't really have any sense of what happened. And Veronica'll say, well, he's eleven. He's not a baby. He should have some sense. And Michael will say things like, but he, but he's not an adult either, Veronica. <laughs> right. He's right. just a kid. <laughs> they did just fight in the park. It's not yeah. that big of a deal.
0: Kids will be kids.
1: <laughs> yeah. So there's, I mean, the cross purposes right away start to work away at the foundations of the initial alignment of the script, which is Annette and Alan versus Veronica and Michael. And then when those fall apart totally, as we've said, they try to make new ones, yep. uh, sort of tentatively grouping up by gender, and that proves to be insufficient by the end of the play too, leaving them with nobody
0: nobody I mean the last line of the play is what do we know (laughs)
1: Yeah, the the last beats of the play are uh, Veronica's has thrown uh, Annette's purse around. Annette is upset that Alan won't defend her and stop Veronica from doing it. So Annette has called them both Ma- Michael and Veronica monsters. She's smashed the vase on the ground. She says, Alan, we're getting out of here. Alan goes to pick up the mess that Annette caused, proving yep. that he's not really aligned with her.
0: Right? Michael yep. says,
1: no, don't worry it about it. But he's also accusing the women of being totally crazy at this point, including his wife, who he says, rum, yeah, you know, you shouldn't be drinking rum like yep. this. Makes mm-hmm. you insane. He's got this hamster thing that Veronica is clearly upset of
0: him about. <laughs> yep. And, and that's the where calls. the play ends. The daughter yeah. calls. And Michael tries calls. to save it, right? Yep. <laughs> Yep, and, and and yeah, so Veronica's on the phone. She's talking to him. She says it's going to be okay. Michael, she hangs up, and Michael's like, that preacher's probably you know eating somewhere. It's going to be fine, and, and Veronica just says no.
1: Because she's <laughs> really upset with him for the hamster thing the whole way through. That's mm-hmm. another situation in which they're not aligned.
0: Right. Veronica
1: thinks that he was in the wrong for that. Yeah. And so... The marriage alignments are broken and the cracks have been shown to be full-fledged. The uh, friendship or gender alignments that they tried to form in the wake of the falling apart of the other ones have absolutely crumbled to pieces mm-hmm. and the characters are left uh, isolated. Yeah. And I'm interested Jackson. I mean so what is this play about? <laughs> I mean I That's don't a- I don't care that the two fictional boys may have hit each other, you know? That doesn't matter to me. So it's not about that. So Mm -hmm. what is it actually about? Is there there a deeper access point to what makes this play done so repeatedly by so many high-caliber people?
0: I think it has something to do with the society argument. It's primarily Veronica's argument that uh, Western society needs to exist within these structures. And she's very happy with Western society. Thank you. And so she wants to uh, exist within them. But then uh, underneath it, I mean, the play is called called The God of Carnage. Right. It's 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 about this kind of savagery that rests on the under the surface of all of us. And uh, and, and the commentary on our ability to be civilized human beings and when and if and when it breaks down, what are we left with? What what remains of our relationships, our alliances? Can we function in this society that way? Um, and so, so that, that for me is a big theme throughout. That's why I think that beat with the alcohol is so, uh, so on the nose is that from that point on all of their, you know, inhibitions, their societal inhibitions begin to be removed and they fight much more fiercely and personally after that beat. You get to see what is under the surface of these societally nice people and they just are reduced to their motives and, and how they want to accomplish them. And I think that that tension uh, allowing to see how they devolve is why it's exciting for actors and why it's really high. Um, uh, what's a, a beat above exciting for the audiences to observe is you get when when done well, you get to see carnage rain, which is kind of an uncomfortable but really fun experience. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so the the title comes from a line given by Alan. Uh, midway, more than midway through the play, Alan and Veronica have a sort of back and forth about... Whether things like this can really be solved by talking, whether anybody is actually out for anything but themselves, how big of a deal is it that any of these parents actually care what their kids are really doing, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It goes around and around kind of about that stuff. And somewhere in there, uh, basically as a response to Veronica's judgmental, controlling sense of like – we, we are like you said we're part of the western civilization we handle these things civilly we don't need to fight we can control our impulses no matter how bad they are we can be real um, we can be real kind and real conversational even when it's not our instincts we can rise above our animalistic Neanderthal nature yep. and she says all this and Alan's response is and, and I, I, this is quote, close to a quote I may not have it exactly right but he says well I believe even the God of Carnage, right? And he goes on to describe this sense that violence, destruction, carnage has reigned since the beginning of
0: time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, and manages to try to reclaim the term Neanderthal, um, <laughs> trying <Yeah. laughs> to like make it a good thing that he's <laughs> Neanderthalic, um, which <laughs> probably doesn't actually work by the end. But yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's that appreciation for the the. Uh, the more animalistic tendencies of humanity is is kind of at 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 um is is what's being discussed, I think, at a deeper level. But that's so, just my opinion. So where, where so
1: where does that come out in all of these characters? The, the most obvious, perhaps, um example of that is in Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael has, as we've sort of described, been kind of a voice of reason through a lot of the play. Uh, Veronica maybe tries to frame herself as the voice of reason, but comes off really unwilling to meet in the middle. She wants to pretend like we're meeting in the middle about this, but ultimately have Alan and Annette kind of come and bow at her feet for her forgiveness. And Michael seems far more... Uh, subdued and understandable and willing to negotiate (laughs) than she does partially because he's the one that really seems interested in hospitality over the guests. Mm -hmm. He's willing to be on their side sometimes. So he's kind of been a voice of reason throughout. Uh, Various things push him and push him and push him farther throughout the play. A lot of them from Veronica rather than Alan and Annette. And eventually he has a line where he says, you know, my wife has dressed me up as this, uh, you know, this niceties liberal, but I'm a Neanderthal. That's who (laughs) I am. I'm a Neanderthal. And then even later in the play, he uses a really vicious slur about Africans because his wife is writing a book about the the tragedy in Darfur. And he says, you know, your time with these, you know, racial slur has driven you insane or something like that. That and right. really reveals something about himself.
0: Yeah, yeah, he he absolutely uh, kind of gets uh, that that stripped away from him. That like middle middleman reconciliation person is stripped away. He also like hates being a family person. He, he. Uh, throughout, especially towards the later part of the play, he says, kids are awful. Uh, he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, marriage is the, the kind of classic joke, but really biting at this stage, because he's been back and forth at Veronica. Marriage is the worst joke, uh, worst curse that God ever gave humans, or something to that effect. So yeah, he, so that gets, starts to, starts to come out of him. I think, Veronica, and, and also
1: he has the sen- he has the whole thing about how kids, just based on who they are and what they are, drive us insane. They drive us to carnage, you know. And right. and, and Alan agrees with him at that point in the
0: script. <laughs> yep, <laughs> yep. So, then so that's I think, a Michael. That's Michael, and then I think Veronica has a, a, a beat of it's it's a smaller beat, but she starts as trying to be. Really reasonable to an extent. she's she's the the uh, the one who is guiding these proceedings forward. And by the end, she's throwing stuff and kind of yelling and making fun of Annette for trying to get Alan to defend her that that I, I see that one as a bit more uh, linear beat uh, from ordered to chaotic um for for her. What do you think, though? Is there something in there that I'm missing for Veronica? Or? No, I,
1: I don't think so. I think the, the key beats for her are that the her descent into carnage, some of it circles around the accusations about Henry, right? I mean, what eventually drives yeah. her to violence is the accusation that Henry could be anything but the perfect son that she raised him to be. Right. Right away one of the first moments where the the veneer really breaks for her is when they're eating this dessert and she's described the recipe to Alan and Annette and Alan makes a joke like, "Well, I'm glad we at least got a new recipe out of this." <laughs> and there's this you see her you can sort of see the the glass crack a little. She so yeah. goes, you know, "Well, I would have preferred it hadn't come at the expense of two of my son's teeth." <laughs> yep.
0: Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's, like, the main reason she's fighting for most of the play. Is and because... she
1: ends up kind of becoming an example of Michael's point. <laughs> that, like, she's a person for whom her children, her child, drove her really to yeah,
0: childish <laughs> behavior. Yeah, yep. <laughs> a whole other side of herself. Um, So then so there's Annette who... Uh... <sighs> Annette's and that's complicated throughout. She's kind of she's Let's been, save
1: it. Let's save a net for last
0: because okay. she's so complicated.
1: Helen's easier, uh, yeah. right? Because he's the one of the four that kind of admits it from the beginning. Right. He already he's worships really,
0: at the throne. He, he really
1: doesn't <laughs> pretend to be very nice about anything whatsoever throughout. Yep. <laughs> you know, his and this is a great example of that. What's his first interaction? What's his first line? Do you remember?
0: No, not she, the top man. Veronica
1: is reading her uh, their their account. The play begins by Veronica reading out loud the written account that they're making. For what? I have no idea. Maybe right. to submit to the insurance company? I mean, there, there's not right, going to be yeah. police involved. We've made That's been very clear through the whole play. It didn't happen at a school, so they don't need to turn anything into the school. So why they've created a statement, I don't really know. It, yeah. Honestly, it kind of seems like a power play because yeah. they both go, you'll be crafting your own statement, of course. And Alan and <laughs> Annette have no response to that. we. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh-huh. We we needed a, a
0: statement? What do, we, what do we need? Okay, sure. <laughs> I,
1: but if I, if I was forced to justify it, it's probably to submit to the insurance company. Yep. Mm-hmm. But uh, in, in any case, the statement says that Benjamin was armed with a stick. So that's the first line is Veronica reading the statement. And Alan's first line is a confrontation. He's mm-hmm. a lawyer, right? He's lawyerly. And he immediately leaps in. He leaps away from Annette, who's very much in that low power ranking place, right? Very much in the, thank you for having us over. Oh, right. I'm so sorry my son hit your son. Oh, I'm so glad. You're so nice that we can work this out. And Alan has leaped into confrontation. He immediately goes, armed? Do we, yep. do we really need to use the word armed? He wasn't armed. He's he a 11.
0: It was a stick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. So they settle on. Uh, furnished, furnished.
1: Yes, yeah. I think in the movie they use carrying, which I sort of wish Hampton had gone with. It's sure. it, it rings a little truer than furnished.
0: Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, from the beginning, he is this confrontational character. This even on the phone throughout, he's confrontational. He's he's yelling at people on the phone all the time. So yeah, I agree. His his journey is pretty direct. Uh, he he stays. And then-
1: and then, like, unlike some of the other characters who have the the you know the the mask on of whatever civilization, I guess I don't know of of politeness Mm -hmm. and then you see the cracks start to form and the darkness start to seep out. Alan, you sort of have these occasional moments of light in the midst of him just being a terrible person. (laughs) Like one of them, uh, uh, Veronica, I forget exactly how they get to this point, but Alan says something like, and and we're here because my son hit your son. And Veronica said on says, on purpose. And Alan goes, yes, on purpose. What are <laughs> you talking about? And he, he has this kind of, he goes on to describe how they use the word like armed in their initial statement. And they want to paint Benjamin as this intentional evil villain. And how it doesn't really leave any room for them to just be kids. And kids do stupid things sometimes. And there's like one of those occasional moments where you're like, yeah. Yeah, I, okay. I,
0: okay. Yeah. I, I see. I see I, where you're going. I feel you right now, Helen. <laughs> yeah.
1: Through the through the rest of the plate, not so much.
0: But right, yeah, but right he,
1: now, I feel you.
0: He answers the phone, and you're like, "Dang it! Okay. Yeah. Never mind. Stop. Get off the phone. <laughs> Get on the phone. Stop. Don't, trying you to can't save do this, this. It's evil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's brief, but but lovely when it happens. Uh, <laughs> so then there's so then there's a net, right? Who? It's almost like the mask has been. Uh, she's dealing with it being put on her rather than she's adopted it herself. Um, she's trying to upkeep this ideal situation going forward, but but it, it overcomes her at some points. I mentioned briefly before that she has the scene where she vomits out of uh, seemingly nowhere. She just starts feeling sick and won't go to the bathroom, tries to stay a part of the conversation and ends up vomiting all over their coffee table and on the pillows and everything. So... There's, there's, there's something deeper going on with Annette than I think many of these other characters. She's carrying, uh, she's carrying the stress of the situation a lot more in her body than the rest of the characters are. The other characters carried in their minds through most of the play, but she, I, I, she has a much more, um, vicious, vicious is the wrong word, but visceral. Uh, v- thank you, visceral reaction to what what is happening around her.
1: Yeah one of the characters describes what she's having as panic attacks. That's That doesn't quite ring true 11 years later now that we have more understanding of what panic attacks look like. But I think what... What the playwright was trying to have the character suggest in language that seems a little dated is the idea that the the compulsive vomiting is related to some sort of deeper mental trauma. And if you know if you follow it throughout, you'll notice that it happens when the moments where Alan has abandoned her to do something morally repulsive and she's left with the weight of his negligence and her what she has to carry of the family, that's the moments in which she she starts to feel sick and vomit, and it actually happens a couple times throughout the play. Uh, she feels sick for a while related to all that. Then there's something goes on with Alan that, that actually causes the vomit. And then later on in the play, she spits up bile again related to the exact same thing. So the sense that she's been forced into wearing this mask of the perfect wife, right? of uh, I'm going to handle the children and take care of things. She says she's in quote-unquote wealth management, and we right. learned that the, man, that the wealth she's managing is just Alan's wealth.
0: Right, yeah. And
1: <laughs> so she, maybe unlike the other three characters, does not really have a choice in choosing to wear this specific mask. And actually, in that way, she's more aligned with Michael, right? Because Michael's been forced to wear this mask just for this meeting right now. Because of Veronica. And you get the sense that, and actually Veronica claims many times, that outside of this meeting, Michael's nothing like this. That he really is more like the Neanderthal he claims to be. So... And that's sort of like Michael, and and she's been forced to wear the mask. But the difference between them is she's forced to wear it twenty four seven. Michael yeah. has put it on for the afternoon, and mm. Veronica describes how surprised he was that he like put on this mask and then suddenly wants to get flowers for the guests and make sure nobody <laughs> eats the rest of the clafouti because right. it's for it's it's for the Raleigh's. Don't eat it. Right. <laughs> but that's that is Annette's 24 7 and mm. you see like you said the way she's forced to physically carry that that mask that's tied down to her face and the and the wreck that that causes in inside of her in who she is
0: yeah it's it's interesting that we found our way to describing it as masks because the production that i saw had a very prevalent mask right on the like the uh chimney of the fireplace throughout it all there was this large kind of tribal mask hung atop it so that was the the very prevalent visual image for me throughout the play was over this all all of this as all of their masks devolve is this mask above that is kind of watching them the god of carnage if you will above them watching them
1: Right. And so as we describe these four, you you get a sense of the spectrum, right? Veronica is somebody who believes in the mask, believes Mm -hmm. that the mask can take over who we are, can push down those darker impulses, and we can become the mask we pretend to be. She's on the way that end of the spectrum. On the far other end of the spectrum is Alan, who believes that the mask is a piece of garbage and we should be (laughs) what we want and work for ourselves 24-7. It's all about us. And then Mm -hmm. in between them are these two people, honestly, and I I feel confident saying this, the two more sympathetic characters of the play, Michael and (laughs) Annette, who are stuck wavering around in in between these two poles and the whole group is trying to have a conversation about anything existing (laughs) at such far ends of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, and they're just trying to make the kind of social construct work in general, trying trying to find a middle ground Trying to, for, for a good chunk of the play. They have their moments, but they're trying to find a middle ground between them.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. So let's talk in just our final few minutes here, Jackson, about the notes from yeah. Yasmina Reza at the beginning. So we mm-hmm. get the characters, lists of four characters, then these are the notes that we get before it begins. All in their 40s, description of the character. A living room, a description of the set. No realism. And then the note, nothing superfluous. Nothing superfluous is a good note for every production. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you look up production photos, I tend to try to do that before I do these. You'll see a lot of the sets are, are very um, sleek. It's a couch, a coffee table, and a chair, and just a few pieces around that make it up. They're, they're not fully imagined four walls, you know? They're not um, box sets. Uh, there's not a lot of set decoration. It's uh, very clean. And that's a way to meet that last note. What I have really yet to see, and the, these I'm not saying these productions don't exist. I'm just saying I haven't seen them in the clips that I watched online, mm-hmm. is taking very seriously this no-realism note. Yeah. What in the world? It's a, it is a, re- I mean, am, am I wrong, Jackson? This play is a, a play
0: of psychological realism. And you certainly can imagine that it would, it, ha- that it would happen. I think I would agree with that, that, that it, 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 this is a, this is a play set in a very realistic situation with people that you can imagine exist, um, and and w- who have jobs that you can imagine exist. Lawyer uh, Michael is, uh, is salesman. a salesman. Uh, salesman of like household goods. Veronica is a writer. Uh, and and um, Annette is a kind of a stay-at-home mom. And she, <laughs> Jackson,
1: come on now. She's in wealth management.
0: She's in wealth management of Alan. Um, <laughs> and and uh, so so I agree that they're all realistic. I wonder if that that direction is an encouragement to the actors to not be bound by realistic uh, uh, emotion throughout. I think realism encourages us to find moments where it makes sense that these are happening. You could play this play as a straight play, um, pretty much, and you can work- It seems like people do. Right, yeah, absolutely. But I wonder if it would be more interesting to find the moments where you add in a little bit of the absurd to these conversations find moments where you interior interiorly I'm going to say that um <laughs> within the line find a place for the motivation to break through in your volume in your cadence in your actions in in the bodies of the actors i think for for me there there are definitely scenes where you could allow yourself to crank to 11 as an actor and and in situations that you maybe wouldn't, as a parent, for instance, you wouldn't want to ever crank to 11. But even before the big fights in here start, I wonder if there's instances where they are just so committed to their motive that it drives them to something uh, more evocative.
1: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think that, honestly, the, the use of repetitive action throughout the play, Michael's cell phone, the use of unbridled and out of the blue violence yeah. at times there there are moments where the the sense that we are just watching a real life situation cracks a little and you mm-hmm. say you know this is this is a different kind of world that's commenting on our world a little bit i have heard the play described as a sort of comedy of manners um that it, In the same way that, like, the importance of being earnest from last week is somewhat mocking and commentating on, in that sense, English, you know, uh, the English elite, the English wealthy, this play is a comment on the – you know suburban families right yeah middle class the veneer (laughs) of politeness that suburban families wear in their interactions with each other and makes fun of and the play is very funny especially when you listen to it listen to that audio production or go see it it's very funny and you can see how it is making fun of and commenting on those same sorts of social norms and niceties that something like the importance of being earnest did and yeah. in that way, it, it breaks out of a little bit of that sense of psychological realism into commentary.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that as well. I think – This play has a has a lot to say about that. You almost imagine I I can easily imagine this being like a Beckett play with a couple a couple differences thrown in. Um, Like the lines would make less sense in the Beckett play, but (laughs) because this is a pretty linear set of lines, you can follow the argument throughout. But I think like this situation, these people roving around the room and and you know throwing up on stuff and throwing things around, taking things apart. A dryer is running loudly throughout. A good chunk of this play—it reminds me of absurdism, and I, I think you you could lean that direction just a little bit and get quite a different result from realism. Right, I think
1: this is the kind of play that you potentially could have a really remarkable production leaning hard away from realism. Mm -hmm. You know, there's the, you said Beckett, so there's the Beckett play with like the heads sticking out of the the urns (laughs) or the trash cans or whatever. I mean, you could imagine sitting four actors in four chairs facing the audience instead of each other and playing the whole play. Yeah. And I mean, something like that, because of the nature of the script it, it 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 reads like a straight play. but once you i think I think the note from the playwright says, if you allow yourself to imagine that it's not that, you're going to discover a whole different world in this play that's going to mean a lot more than you just playing this as a straight play. right. Mm-hmm. A straight psychological realism play,
0: yeah. Well, I, I I think that is about it for what we have time to discuss this this play is a short little play that has so much packed into it It's a you know a 40 some page play that uh I I, I I am glad that plays or productions continue to do it in one act because I think it just Runs together so well. I think it would be it would be hard to recover from a break in the action in this play because it is just a straight line to the climax all the way to the end, and then you're like, Ugh, what, what happened? So yeah, mm-hmm. if there's and any- you are
1: you're left at the end going, just like I'm sure the characters are in their world, but. What in the world?
0: How did we get here? We started so nice. And just an and hour
1: ago, we were just having a discussion. It seemed like it was going fine.
0: Now there's flowers what everywhere. What has happened?
1: <laughs> you sort of awake from a stupor at the end. And just like, and the characters do that too, where they finally start looking around and they're like, oh. Yeah. Whoops. Wow. That, Man. Was,
0: that was a mistake. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so, well, if, if you have seen this play, if you've been in this play, or if you've read it like we did this week, and uh, have some other thoughts to add to it, we'd love to continue the conversation with you. Uh, more perspectives are always an excellent thing, and we'd love to hear uh, what your thoughts are, what you think we got wrong even. We promise not to be too offended. Uh, <laughs> but uh, if you want to find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, the username is... At Noscript Podcast and uh, comment on the post. We're at right it on the wall or whatever. And uh, just tell us what you think of the play. You can also email us noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. Any of those options. We'd love to continue the conversation with you.
1: If you like this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, besides being a patron, that's the best thing you can do for us. The next best thing is sharing this episode on your social media, with your friends. If you like scripts, you know people that like scripts. That's how friendships work. So please tell other people about this podcast. We have been blessed with the listenership of this uh, podcast continues to grow episode to episode uh, and just bewilderingly awesome to us. So please continue to grow the NoScript community. You can find our episodes on Podbeam where they're hosted on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. One of the easiest ways to find it is just to click the link on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter every Monday
0: when our episodes are released. Yeah, which, uh, next Monday, we'll be coming at you with another play, but until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen.
1: Thanks for joining us with No Script, the Podcast.
0: Yeah, yeah. See ya.